Welcome back to the Society Case Files podcast. My name is Robert and I'll be your host. Today I'm going to get a little political. I'm going to talk about some of the things that are going on right now and uh, express some concerns and thoughts about uh, just stuff in general, I guess. I'm going to really start with these protests and how I've seen some people comment about them and how they're approaching them. This is obviously not a very traditional podcast for me. I'm much more directed towards entertainment stuff, but I, I gotta say something. I just can't sit back and listen and watch without expressing some opinions. And before I really get into it, I just want to kind of qualify. I'm not an expert in politics by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just a 46-year-old guy who has worked in multiple industries that are dramatically impacted by the political environment and and how things work in general. So my corporate job that I had for almost 20 years was a staffing company for blue-collar workers. And we employed all walks of life, from folks who had to live out of their cars because they couldn't afford any kind of housing at all and they were trying to get back on their feet, to people that just wanted to supplement their income a little bit, to skilled labor. So we had a a diverse crowd of folks coming in there. And U.S. politics really did impact our ability to deliver services to our customers. People who came to us were contractors or, in some cases, places that needed long-haul truck drivers, airplane mechanics, a very broad category of people doing different kinds of work. And so just as one example, we had a method of paying people when I first started back in 2005, where we basically took these old ATM machines, you know, the really big ones that uh, were freestanding. They weren't even built into walls or anything, and they just ended up being bolted into the ground. And the way they worked was they were attached to our system. And an employee could come up and they'd say, do you want a check or would you like a voucher? If they chose a voucher, they'd get a printout with a code on it. And they'd go and input the code into the machine and it would spit out their money. They'd basically get cash right on the spot. And this was sort of a value add for them because they would be able to get their money without taking a check to, uh, you know, a liquor store, whatever else. A lot of our employees didn't have bank accounts, so they couldn't just go deposit the money they'd have to find some place that would cash it. And oftentimes, they're coming in pretty late at night, so they would have to wait till the next day. And if they had another job the next day, then chances were good they might not be able to cash it then either. And so anyway, we came up with this this method by which they could just get cash right away. Now, the trick was, and this is where things became uh, a problem for some political places and for, for the law in some states, is that it would uh, cost them money to use the machine, just like an ATM machine. Now, maybe if it had been a set amount, then that wouldn't have been a problem. But it wasn't. What it did was it took all of the change and a dollar. So if you got a voucher for $35.40, then it would take a dollar forty. So if one guy got a check for thirty two oh two, he'd be like, heck yeah, give me a voucher. I'm going to do it. It's only going to cost me a dollar two cents. 
Whereas if it came out to where he'd make thirty three ninety five, he'd be like, eh, I think I really want that dollar. That is going to be able to take me places. I'll be able to buy some things that I really do need with that dollar. And as a result, in California, it was the first place I think really challenged it. And it made it to where the machines were not legal there. And, I mean, we came up with it, I think one of the primary reasons was because the machines were already kind of old. Even in 2005, they were fairly delicate, and repairing them was kind of painful. So not having them dispense coins helped a lot. Uh, they did dispense coins in Canada, but for whatever reason, they didn't in, in the, the U.S. And they were impl- they were implemented before I started and decommissioned while I was there. So in California, no. They just said, no more of that. That's nonsense. No more variable fees. That's not fair. And that kind of political stuff caused our company to create, basically, a lobbyist group. And they, they went to different places, and they would uh, get donations to fight different political concepts that would impact our, our business. So the staffing business is a fairly complex one because there's so many variables about employing a person that you have to take into effect. Uh, HR stuff in uh, in particular with healthcare and uh, their taxes and that sort of thing. And because we chose to do it in a, in a method that was very different than everyone else in the sense that it was a day labor situation to where a guy might work Monday at this job for, you know, $8 an hour. And then tomorrow he goes and works at another job for another company for $10 an hour. And then he works for yet another company on the third day for $7 an hour or whatever. And then at the end of the week, uh, we have to basically create a unified uh, tax form for him so that when the time comes, he can actually do his taxes and have it not be a nightmare. Because even though he worked for multiple places, he technically only worked for us. And yet, because of those variable rates, then there's variable taxes, and we have to take into consideration garnishments, and so on, and so on, and so on. And so any kind of legislation that comes down and impacts that stuff, whether it be now everybody who is full-time, it doesn't matter if they're temps, they need to have health care, or everybody needs to be able to use direct deposit, these things really hit our company hard as far as financially um, motivated projects and stuff like um, changing the system to even allow direct deposit for such tiny amounts because some of these guys were making like $20 in a whole day and then they'd get garnished down to like 16 or even less. So we had a lot of work to do every time big legislation came down about staffing and that's why the political action group got involved and and went out there and, and lobbied hard. Now, all that said, I don't want it to sound like I agree with it or I sympathize with the corporation because I don't. <laughs> I know for a fact we had the money to do the right thing in each of those cases. And in some cases, much as I am very anti-corporate, I have to admit that we did try to do things to improve the lives of the employees that were working there. One of the big visions right before I stopped was implementing uh, some mobile tools to allow folks to not have to come into the office at 4.30 in the morning with with the hope of getting a job. Uh, because sometimes they'd show up at 4.30 and they'd wait until 8 and get nothing and just have to go home. 
no work for them at all. And that just sucked. So it was really nice when they came up with the mobile app that they could just log in and say, yes, I'm ready for work. Hook me up. And then they get a text and say, hey, you're on. Go to this address. You know, swing by the, the office and grab this protective gear, whatever, and head out there. You've got work for eight hours. So that was really cool. And it did cut down time for our employees. So there was some selfishness there. But for the most part, it really only benefited the the employees themselves. And it expanded the pool of available resources because now they could sleep in a little bit. They could hang out with their phone on really loud and make sure they woke up, whatever. So I think that ultimately what I'm trying to say is that I had to get involved in all of that stuff and really listen to what politicians were doing and how it was impacting minorities in particular and the crazy stuff that they had to endure from our different offices. I'll never forget we had an office in Florida and one of our technicians was on the phone with the branch manager there. And it sounded like they were at a mall because it was so loud behind them. And so the person tells my tech, hey, just give me a second. By the way, he was just a great guy. He sounded so nice and he was just on it and he knew his systems and he was going through the troubleshooting methods with us with no problem. So he tells our guy to hold on and he holds the phone away. He doesn't put us on hold or mute. And he just yells at all of the people to get back against the wall. But he didn't just say that. He used some racially charged language with it to address them. And he comes back on the line. He's like, sorry, you know, you just got to get these guys in line. You got to tell them who's boss. It was incredible. And part of that is from Pacific Northwest naivete in a way for the technician in particular who was just like what are you kidding me people do that and just not understanding that yes in some parts of the United States many parts of the United States minorities can expect that kind of behavior and so it's just a reminder that it doesn't matter how people work with you they can always be something you don't expect And so let's come around and talk about what's going on as I'm doing this. All these protests and these riots about George Floyd and the officer, or I should just flat out say freaking asshole who killed him. And all of these folks are watching these riots or they're commenting on them and they're saying, what is all this about? Why are people being so violent? Why aren't they complying with this order? Why is this? And whatever, whatever why comes out, it's naivete again. It's just blatant and self-induced ignorance. Because if you don't know why those communities are erupting and why they're protesting, peaceful or not, then you haven't been paying any attention to everything that's been going on for the last decade and what everyone is constantly fighting against. I mean, it comes down to other small things like people complaining about having to wear masks. And then there's two sides to that complaint too. There is the, I can't believe people are complaining about wearing masks. What's going on with that? You don't complain about wearing seatbelts. Well, <laughs> sadly for me, I'm old enough to remember when wearing seatbelts became a law. It wasn't a law when I was a kid. It became a law after I started driving, in fact. 
and I remember everybody, oh man, screw them. They can't make me wear a seatbelt. That's ridiculous. And now I can't even imagine getting in a car without putting on a seatbelt. It's like second nature. And most people I know are the exact same way. I don't know anybody who complains about wearing a freaking seatbelt. And overall, it's just because enough evidence has finally been shown that the few times people aren't wearing them, they get ejected from their car and turned into hamburger. And people are like, that sucks. I don't want that to happen to me. So you think about these masks. It's the same thing. It's just going to take people time. So on one hand, I say, calm down. You know, stop being mad at people that they're so upset about wearing the masks. But the guys who are upset about it, the people who are complaining, (laughs) kind of are just whiners. They aren't complaining in a way that makes any sense. They're not complaining about it because it's genuinely inconvenient. They're using stupid-ass terms like, you're encroaching on my freedom. It's like, really? I mean... Look at the pictures. This was done in 1918 for the Spanish flu. People had to wear masks then, too. People missed out on great opportunities then, too. So why even complain? Why even fight it? Just do it. In this case, this is one of those things that when you are told just do it, it's not hurting you to put on a freaking mask. It's not just do that heroin. It's not going to hurt you in any way. In fact, all it's going to do is ensure that other people around you are not going to get sick and you're not going to get sick. That's it. So let's take this concept to the riots. People are saying these rioters and these protesters should just comply. Just do it. And then some of them are even ballsy enough to say, It's just like the masks. You tell me to just wear my mask, I'm telling them to just comply. Well, obviously George Floyd tried to just comply, and he got killed. So this is a lot different than the masks, okay? Just do it in the case of following the rules of corrupt and horrifyingly monstrous police officers and idiot National Guard guys dropping paintballs on people and stuff. Complying with them is tantamount to just putting a gun to your own head in some cases. George Floyd died in an effort to comply with a police officer, begging for his life as he suffocated. I don't really see how we can equate wearing a life-saving device like a mask to listening to the police. So that's one thing. The next thing is I've seen a lot of people start doing this whole devil's advocate thing on just about everything. And at first it really drove me crazy and I was getting pretty frustrated with it enough. So that I actually was engaging in political arguments on Facebook, which is generally, I have a rule not to, I try to scroll on and just ignore it because whose mind are you going to change on Facebook? Nobody's, (laughs) but it's so frustrating when you see somebody who, they essentially agree, but then they like launch into some diatribe that, that suggests that despite the fact that they disagree with it too, it's okay that it's happening. Good example is uh, somebody was talking about, um, martial law and then, you know, basically they have free reign to do anything to anybody they want. And my point is maybe so, but (laughs) right now, At this point in history, 
right after a police officer just murdered a guy pretty much in cold blood and his buddy stood by and watched is now the time to exercise the full extent of martial law is now the time to go through and do that kind of thing especially in the case that i'm talking about where they were driving down a suburb and thwapping people who are just on their porch or is now the time to really focus on building a community faith outreach program to try and buy back some some integrity and and some buy-in from the public to believe that you guys aren't just murderous assholes and that you are there to do the right thing and protect them no no they'd rather not they'd rather just reign by fear and and horror and I guess my point is, is that if that's the way they're going to go, it really looks like all they want is people to revolt. They want to see people stand up and fight back and they're going to get it. I guess. I mean, you saw the Minneapolis fires. I mean, they trashed that place. They destroyed a target. They destroyed an Arby's. I don't know all the other places. I guess an auto zone got trashed too. And uh, is that, what these cops and authorities want? No, I'm pretty sure that they would like to buy back some some faith from their communities and to reintegrate into the communities again. I saw a uh, comment that is fairly accurate. It says, if there are 10 bad cops and 1,000 good cops, but the 1,000 good cops don't turn in the 10 bad cops, then you've got 1,010 bad cops. I understand the the thin blue line concept, the, you know, you got to have your brother officers back. You've seen this millions of times in movies and in history and on the news. It happens all the time. And when somebody snitches on their colleagues, they're just done. I mean, I can cite so many examples in media about this that really address it. But one of the more important ones is line of duty in the U.K., where the characters belong to the anti-corruption unit. I mean, they basically go after cops, just like internal affairs in the U.S. And the British police would not support the show, but they claim to have received a lot of technical help through uh, different officers, uh, either being anonymous or whatever. So they're, they're trying to express that it is fairly accurate. Whether it is or is not, what we know for sure is that the way police treat folks in these investigative units that are going after corruption and uh, cops that do crazy stuff. But that makes it tough because these guys are going out and they're doing a job that they have to put their lives on the line several times, especially guys answering things like domestic violence charges or going to other people's homes. You know, you don't really know what you're walking into and you've got to rely on that officer with you that they're going to have your back. And if, if the idea is that these people who are in this stressful situation are going to start turning on each other and, and calling out misconduct, which I don't necessarily say is a bad idea. I'm just saying the entire culture has to change to make that okay. But you know, we as a society need to make some changes too to make it easier for those police officers to address misconduct. Uh, wide and easy access to firearms makes that job way more difficult than it needs to be. 
The fact that practically anyone, and almost everyone, has a gun makes their job really freaking tough. And, I mean, they have to go into every situation assuming today's the day I may get shot. Now, that doesn't mean that they have carte blanche to be an asshole. But what it does mean is that they are already on edge whenever they take a call. In the back of their minds, I guarantee you, every time they take a call, they're thinking, what is going to happen? Because just think about when you need to go to the dentist. <laughs> think of all the dread that pops into your head. The the personal sabotage on any situation that pushes you outside of your, your normal routine. And then think that every time a cop responds to a, to a call, it is beyond the routine. It's never going to be simple. And the funny thing is, is that even if it is, even if five calls in a row, nothing happens at all. They just go talk to somebody. <laughs> Any single one of those could have turned violent and it could have been the last day they were alive. So our culture needs to change. Our society has to give up their addiction to guns. You know, it can't be the, the excuses can't be things like it's just too hard or no one's going to get them all, or it's just ridiculous, or the Second Amendment protects my right to have that gun. Uh, I mean, if you want the police to be calm individuals that go into every situation following the rules, then we need to ensure that their lives and their jobs are easier to do, and that they can go into a situation, at least rule out some factor that is going to essentially uh, threaten their lives. So if we could get over our need for guns, we could really help the police to focus on some of the stuff that we want them to do. We could help them be less intense and constantly worried about being shot. I mean, there's plenty of other ways that they're going to have to worry about being hurt, knives, freaking swords, Whatever else people can come up with, at least it's not the instantaneous execution of themselves or civilians because some Yahoo whips out a gun and just opens fire. I mean, 17 rounds in a Glock is plenty to cause trouble in a neighborhood. I mean, all sorts of people can get hurt from that. And I mean, these are all the things that police have to consider. Now, do I want to offer them an excuse for being jerks or animals killing people? No. I want to find a solution that will help them be the people we want them to be. Because right now, we're hoping that they're going to basically be saints, that they're going to do this super high-level integrity job and be basically beyond reproach. And it's just unrealistic to expect that, considering what they have to deal with here, especially in the U.S. I mean, it's nuts. Now, it already has to be something of a calling, because if you go to salary.com, a starting cop, the lowest 10%, are starting out at $23.67 an hour, basically forty nine grand a year. And my technicians, who got to sit at an office and take phone calls all day and surf the internet, chat with their buddies, mess around on Facebook, fix computer problems... They were starting at $19 an hour if they had no experience. 
And if they had some certifications and college, then they were pushing $21, $22 an hour. So at, to start, for a guy on the phone <laughs> with no real threat of being shot or hit by a car during his, his work or being a, abused physically was making almost as much as the lowest 10% of the police who were starting out in their very, very dangerous careers. The median is uh, $27, so right around 56 grand a year. And then the highest was basically thirty-one seventy-five an hour, uh, looking at 67%. And so think about that for a minute. I mean, these guys are going into a job where they're going to make less than someone in the IT field. And they're going to have a lot more responsibility because, honestly, unless you work in the medical IT field, if you work in, like, my staff management field, the absolute worst thing that is going to happen if you do not solve that computer problem is someone is not going to get paid instantaneously at that location. You can still call another location that is working, enter all their information there, and pay that person out. They might just have to go across town to get their cash. Yeah, it's heck, hell of an inconvenience. But it isn't like he gets murdered. He doesn't end up being in the hospital over it. And my person who called me certainly doesn't end up with any of those things. And yeah, it's really stressful and sucks. But putting the same level of failure on a police officer could mean that him or other people are dead. They have much higher responsibilities. They have to learn to negotiate crazy traffic. They have to learn all kinds of rules and regulations. They have people's rights. They have to be very knowledgeable about. They need to glove up when they do certain things. They've got dangerous equipment that they're handling. They could be exposed to chemicals. They're out in the field. They don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I had people in my family who worked for the uh, city and they had to go out in the field and they were exposed to all kinds of craziness and they weren't even doing police work. So just thinking about that, we've got a lot of work to do to fix the police situation. And it's not just on the cops. It's on us too, as a society to make some changes, to address our addiction to violent implements, to think about how much we're paying the people that we expect to essentially be saints. I mean, again, it is either a calling or a sadistic hope that you'll be able to do violence to other people. And if it's the latter, you need to be weeded out, obviously. But what needs to happen is the requirements for the job need to go up. So it must be harder to get the job for people. And it must pay the people more so that it equals out to the amount of qualification they receive. So if we say... Everyone who is going to be a cop needs two years of school towards a criminal justice degree, and they have to complete this police academy course that is on par with, say, I don't know, a military training course. And after that, they need to become certified in whatever, whether it be maybe psychology or something. Who knows? I'm not, <laughs> I'm not here to make the uh the solution 
but I'm saying it needs to be something along these lines. We need to qualify them out. We need to make it difficult to become a police officer, to stop sadistic, racist assholes from seeking the job in the first place. Much like teachers who are either called to do it or see it as a simple job so they go off and and try and get it, we need to elevate the qualifications and thereby the process by which we get to those qualifications so that when someone has that job, number one, they definitely want it. Number two, we know they're qualified to do it. Number three, we trust that they have the integrity to do it because they've been through so much screening and they really do understand that this is an important job and screwing up does mean that there are ramifications. And when you do all of the stuff I'm talking about, when you make it really hard to get there and you get the best like we want, because we want these people to be the best, we want them to be saints. And when you put them through the ringer and you know that they got there through merit and hard work, then we've got those people who we expect to be so benevolent and so good and above the... uh, temptations to do terrible things and all the other stuff, whether it be to take bribes or hurt people or go on the take or whatever else you can think of, uh, you know, when they do make a mistake, it should be something minor. It should be like they wrecked the car or they lost some equipment that is non-essential or that kind of thing. It shouldn't be that they inadvertently murder someone (laughs) or advertently do it in the case of George Floyd, it should be that those situations become such dramatic outliers that we should all be completely shocked. But these days, I mean, those riots aren't happening because people are shocked. (laughs) They're happening because people are tired of that shit. And that's why they've gone out of their way to make that very, 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 very clear. And we need to get ourselves to the point where if anything like that happens... We are absolutely aghast. And within minutes of hearing about the fact that it happened, the person in question is already in custody and has already been charged. What the police stations continue to do wrong in these cases is they just err on the side of let the guy go. Even if he is going to eventually be proven innocent, had they arrested the officer immediately and put him in jail, And said, look, we've arrested him. We're gathering all the evidence to determine exactly what to do. They might have headed off all this stuff. But because it looked like just another cover-up, another slap on the wrist, especially for some jackass who'd done it 18 times of various horrible things, instead we we get people having to rise up and burn things to the ground because they feel like they have no recourse. Because they're living in a state of complete injustice. And it all comes back to everything I've been talking about. We don't qualify our people. We don't push them to be better. We don't pay them enough to be better. And we don't really care. Because we care more about our right to be able to hurt each other. And we don't want to fix the social problems that require police to act so much. So this is what we get. And then we all have to fight because our leaders don't take these concerns and do their jobs because they've got pockets that are being filled by people who 
who care about profit margins more than lives. You know, here's a great example. And it's a much more minor one than what happened to George Floyd. But if something gets stolen from you, (laughs) chances are, number one, you're never going to get it back. Number two, if that person gets caught, it's going to be a complete and total joke. It'll be random and luck. And number three, even if you have them on camera, (laughs) it doesn't seem like anything happens. I mean, I've gone on next door and seen people say, this guy stole my Amazon packages right off my doorstep. Here's his picture. Gave it to the cops. They're like, yeah, seen him before. And that's it. I've done some reading to find out why. Why it is that cops barely care about robbery and that sort of thing. I mean, we have a whole robbery division in these cases. And they're just too busy. There's just too many other high-profile things going on to address these porch pirate jackasses going around stealing stuff or even people breaking into homes. You know, a long time ago, I had this notion for a minute to become a police officer. I knew somebody I was able to talk to about the job and sort of get a feel for what it was all about. And the big case that he was working on was boat motors. People were stealing these boat motors off of uh, boats, these offboard motors, and, and selling them. And it was bad enough to where they were just going all up and down the Puget Sound, <laughs> jacking people's boat motors. Uh, pretty blatant. And uh, that's that's what they were working on. And he'd been working on it for a little while. I can't remember exactly how long, but it was more than a couple weeks. And they weren't able to find him. But these things were like 600 bucks a piece back in the late 1990s. So quite a bit of money, I guess. And what's interesting is that I don't even know if today that would get much notice. If somebody would really be working on it or if they just sort of put some time on it when they had a chance. And I kind of think of police work now based on some of the things I've seen and some research as much like when I was in the IT world. You know, I have this massive list of stuff I just had to get done. <laughs> some ambiguous time frame. Some of them had deadlines. Some of them didn't. And I'd find myself with 15 minutes and a little bit of inspiration to work on Project A. So I'd bust it out and look at it for 15, 10, 20 minutes, make some calls, look around, realize there was nothing else I could do with it, move on to the next thing. And if that's the case, then police officers are just overworked. And so they can't actually do their jobs, which leads us to the question of why do we have them in their current state? What can we do to fix it? What can we do beyond just looking at the police? Stop tunnel visioning on police specifically and look at society in general. And what about our civilization? (laughs) Yes, civilization needs to change in order to affect a change upward to the police or to the schools or to our politics or any of the stuff. What do we have to give up or alter in our habits and our goals to have a safer environment for everyone? It's not just about making changes on one thing. That's the easy way in people's mind. It's the more immediate thing, but we really do have to start thinking long-term We have to stop thinking, I want to see change this year. We have to start thinking, I want to see change, period. Change takes time, it takes patience, and it takes some endurance for pain, 
because it sucks. It's not easy to to take change. So especially when we're looking at the kind of stuff we're looking at here. My final thing I want to talk about is just randomly playing devil's advocate. It's really counterproductive to play devil's advocate unless you genuinely believe in the alternate side. If you're just being an ass because it sounds fun, because you're bored since you've been stuck at home and uh, unable to get out, and so your best means of entertainment is to start an argument, then just don't. Or even please say that you're doing that. Because I've seen so many people get fired up and frustrated for no reason. Because someone's just like, you know what, it'll be fun to be a troll. Trolling at a time like this is just practically inhuman. Considering what we're talking about and the gravity of what we're dealing with, it may feel hopeless to the point where being a troll is all you've got. To be a cynical dick, basically, and attack other people. Just don't be involved then. Just go and sit down somewhere. Don't read any of it. Find a different way to be a jerk. You know, you're basically being part of the problem at that point. And we have such a massive amount of problems that need to be addressed. We really don't need people to add themselves to that list. Especially petty people who are getting off on making other people mad and shitting on on honest and passionate methods to solve our issues. Anyway, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening to the show. If you want to support the project, visit www.ko-fi.com slash societycasefiles. If you want to visit the website, it is www.societycasefiles.com. Thanks again. Look forward to seeing you soon.